0: Hello, hello, hello and welcome to Capital Musings, your Capital Development Fund podcast where we focus on fresh ideas that make finance work for the poor in the least developed countries. I'm your host, Eduardo Tancioni, and you can find Capital Musings on all streaming platforms and our dedicated website, podcast.uncdf.org. The theme of this season is the road to Doha in view of the upcoming 15th conference for the least developed countries. This was initially intended to be held in late January, but due to COVID-19 and Omicron variant, this was officially postponed until further notice following the adoption of a resolution by the General Assembly on the 20th of January 2022. Follow us on social media, at UNCDF, and we will keep you all posted as to when this is going to happen. But now, let's focus on today's guest, which I'm really, really excited to be welcoming to our capital music, Professor Kunal Sen. Welcome, Professor. Uh, thank you very much, Eduardo. Pleasure to be in this program. So, Professor Kunal San is Director of United Nations University World Institute for Development Economics Research, UNIWIDA. UNIWIDA provides economic analysis and policy advice with the aim of promoting sustainable and equitable development for all. So, Professor, can you kindly describe to us your life journey in three words
1: and what they mean to you? Thank you very much. I mean, my life journey in three words would be from academia to policy. So I was an academic, I was at the University of Manchester where I still have an affiliation and I moved to UNE Wider about three years back. And UNE Wider is very different from being in a pure academic department because we very much engage with policy.
0: So from academia to policy, three words for a life journey thus far and now working on policy at unu wider So tell us a little bit more about unu wider and your work.
1: So unu wider is a part of the United Nations Diversity, which also means it's part of the United Nations. And it's an institute which essentially does policy and research, essentially addressing many of the challenges that we have in the UN itself, and in particular the SDG agenda, the 2030 Agenda of Sustainable Development Goals. What we do is we try and combine research and policy with capacity development. We work very closely with scholars and policymakers in the Global South. And we try to make sure that our work addresses the core concerns of many of the UN member countries, understanding the challenges of structural transformation, inequality, poverty reduction, climate change, conflict, and so on. We have been in existence for over 35 years based in Helsinki, Finland, and our work is at the cutting edge of development economics, but we do not do only development economics. We have a very broad vision of research. So a lot of our research is also on governance, politics, social factors, and so on.
0: Okay. So quite a a wide array of topics, but do you have a specific country context that you may be looking out for? Is there like a different theme? Like how do you organize yourself? Year by year, depending on what kind of research you may conduct.
1: Our current research is based on three themes. And the themes are transforming economies, transforming states, and transforming societies. On the first theme of transforming economies, we're trying to understand how to create good jobs. This is very much about SDG 8 on decent work and inclusive growth. So a lot of our workers understand to understand how do we create Good job, especially in context where we see a lot of workers in Africa and Asia and also in America who are working in the informal sector, which is often are a situation where they're not very well paid and the jobs are not particularly very productive. So that's one core concern in the theme transforming economies. In the theme transforming states, our core concern is to try to understand how can states deliver better services for their citizens, especially the poor and the vulnerable. So this could be social protection. This could, for example, be also better healthcare and so on, better schooling. So we try to understand state capacity and understand why do we see state capacity quite different across different parts of the developing world. This is particularly quite relevant in the current work we are doing on COVID-19. Because COVID-19, as we've seen, many parts of the developing world we have seen countries try to address it within their own constraints, reasonably okay, reasonably well, while other contexts that perhaps wasn't the case. And so you don't understand how did states and their capacity help? How did they address the particular this particular pandemic, which is essentially some, something pretty much every country in the developing world has had to face? That's an example where we're working on COVID-19 in particular around state capacity. A second body of work within the same theme is looking at conflict and peace building. We know that many countries are in situations where there is internal conflict and there is high levels of fragility. And of course, their states need to be effective in trying to provide security to their own citizens. We try to understand exactly how that can happen in this context, especially again, countries in Africa and Asia and Latin America, where we see high levels of conflict and fragility. So that's a second body of work within the theme, Transforming States. In the theme on transforming societies, we have a specific interest in looking at inequality. So we have a very large database here in UNU Wider, which has been there for a long time, perhaps the most comprehensive data on inequality called WIID, WEED in short. This data provides comprehensive data, comprehensive measures of inequality on almost all in all called countries where there is data and over time. And in that project, we have been trying to provide consistent measures of inequality so we can compare countries and compare progress in reducing inequality over time. In the same project, in the same theme, we also have projects that look at group-based inequality which is inequality across social and economic groups, understanding what exactly are the reasons for that, how do we capture this quality across groups, especially social inequality, and what can be done about it. Along with that, there's also work that we are doing on women's work. Women, as we know, are important part of the workforce, but where we've seen, often their work has not been adequately valued or measured in standard national income accounting systems. So how can we actually better capture and measure women's very important work? And also, how can we encourage women to be contributing to the labor market through paid work? So that project looks at women's work, looks at social economic empowerment that occurs through women's work, and does understand the cross-national cross regional cross differences around women's participation in the labor market. So this is our essential work that we're doing across the three themes. And work that, in fact, Water has been doing for a very long time. We have been working on economic transformation for a very long time. We've been working on inequality for a very long time. We've been working on conflict and state capacity also for a long time. So this is work that we're building on from our previous work, but we're also contributing in innovative ways to new research very much aligned with the SDGs, the 2030 Agenda. So our work is around, as I mentioned already, SDG 8. Clearly, our work is very much around SDG 10, inequality, and also SDG 5, gender equality. SDG 16 and 17 is around domestic resource mobilization, inclusive societies, partnerships, and so on. So we are working on five core SDGs, and our projects are aligned very closely with these five core SDGs. Thanks so much. This is so interesting. So
0: we have transforming economies, we have transforming states, and we have transforming societies. So I want to link it back a little bit with what you said first, from academia to policy. So based on all the work that you and you wider does, can you walk us through how you move from this research that you may conduct and how the impact that how you actualize all these values that you have onto policymaking? and also helping a member state actualize them. So
1: let me give you two examples from our current work. So one example is work we're doing the Ministry of Economics and Finance in Mozambique. So you have a very important program in Mozambique where we have also our own colleagues based in Maputo, Mozambique, working with the ministry and also the university, the local university there, trying to devise policies for inclusive growth, poverty reduction, and so on. That's one example. The second example is in South Africa, where we also have a program of research for many years now, working with the National Treasury, where we're trying to help the Treasury in terms of macroeconomic modeling policies, inequality reducing policies, policy around creating jobs, enterprise development, taxation, and so on, lots of different work, climate change too, so lots of different work going on in that program, which we call SA Tide. So these are two examples where we're working with government partners in the case of Mozambique, the Ministry of Economic and Finance, in the case of South Africa, the National Treasury, but also the South African Revenue Service and other government partners, where we're working very closely with them in collaborative research, where the research is locally owned. And our role is to contribute our own knowledge or expertise to the research that's being done. And it's obviously quite, often, it's very clear, this research is very policy-oriented. It's addressing the policy needs of policymakers in these countries And these are two examples because we have quite large programs in these two countries, Mozambique and South Africa. We also worked in Tanzania. We worked in Myanmar previously. We worked in Vietnam. So our work is very much locally embedded, country-specific work, working with local partners and trying to collaborate with them in trying to address innovative challenges and generate innovative solutions to the challenges they face around different aspects of economic and social development.
0: That's so interesting, Professor, and I think I want to highlight something that you said that is very important and it gives a different dimension as to why the UN would also work on academia when we have university everywhere, one may think. But actually, the importance of linking up the different actors that play a role in the country and the importance of supporting through capacity development initiatives, certain perspectives, promoting them, making sure that all the different solutions that we may derive from our research can be locally owned, can be country-specific. So this is a very important element that I think UNU-WIDER and other partners really do and work on, and we should highlight even more so, especially during the decade of action that we're currently undergoing. And this could not be more relevant than to our work at UNCDF, where we focus on LDCs, and we truly believe that they are the crucible for the achievement of the 2030 Agenda. So... What's your view on the next decade for the LDCs? Is their unique
1: traits? In my view, and, and I should also mention the, our country programs, one of them, obviously, it Mozambique, is LDC, Tanzania, and Myanmar. We had a program till last year, and also an LDC. So we've been working with LDC partners and governments for a long time. And the LDCs have faced a particular challenge. The challenge is quite a range of challenges. One big challenge is economic diversification. The problem in many of the LDCs is that their economic structures are very narrowly concentrated around a few commodities and sectors. Now, what that means is that when there was a shock, a global shock, I mean, the pandemic is a good example, but there are many other shocks that happen, like shocks to commodity prices and so on, their economic structures being so concentrated cannot absorb these shocks. And what that means is that because they tend to face a lot of shocks frequently, Economic growth and development often cannot happen in a systematic and a continuous way. So concentration and not much diversification is one part of it, but also linked with that is also the trade structure. Because they have concentration economic activity around a few sectors, for example, the mining, or maybe around one or two commodities that they're producing in manufacturing. What that also means is that the trade structure is also very concentrated. And what that means is that when new countries come into play in that particular product, let's say garments, then they are faced with an immense challenge because they can't really move into some other product that's trade in a simple, straightforward way. So I see this challenge of economic concentration, trade structure being fairly reliant on a few commodities, mostly primary commodities, are all kind of interlinked problems that essentially means that these countries often don't tend to see high growth rates or very volatile growth rates. So that's one set of challenges. The second set of challenges is around human development, inequality, poverty, and so on. It's also true to say that many of these countries don't seem to see high levels of human capital or schooling, for example. They don't seem to have often effective health systems and so on. So that means also that non-economic side of LDC's transformation and movement up from where they are to graduate out of LDC status is very difficult because not only do we have economic constraint, we also have a social constraint. Lack of human capital, high poverty, high vulnerability, marginalized populations, all are part of the same set of challenges around social inclusion and where LDCs have faced particular challenges. The third set of challenges is around climate change. Many of the LDCs, especially in the Pacific Islands, but even also in sub saharan Africa, are faced with climatic shocks of a severe nature. And these climatic shocks can simply lead to a situation where some progress might have been made gets reversed. Climatic shocks lead to a destruction of assets, infrastructure and so on, migration, that is almost as forced migration because people are fleeing areas where there has been climatic changes. So that also means that they're very vulnerable to climate change issues. And this is very important given the discussion going on about uh, about climate change and climate action in the international community. And so this third set of challenges around climate change, environmental degradation, environmental vulnerability is something that many LDCs face. And given this all together, the three triple challenges, one on economics, second on social side, And third round climate means that it is often quite difficult for LDCs to put together a program of action to graduate from LDC status. And that's something that clearly in this next 10 years of implementation, um, the Doha program of Action, this is really important. We've got to find ways to address these triple challenges. And in my view, perhaps the core challenge really now is on the economic side. Because if you can get the economic constraint in some way addressed, countries can grow, hopefully leading to more revenues that they can use to finance schooling, for finance health systems, and so on, and perhaps even take necessary steps to mitigate the negative effects of climate change. So I do see this economic constraint being very important to address in the next few years going forward. Thank you so much, Professor. So, economic, social, climate
0: dimensions. And you really touched upon the duality of four LDCs, that on the one hand, we have exogenous stresses, like you have talked about right now, COVID-19. And on the other hand, we have unique vulnerabilities that characterize the LDCs over reliance on a certain natural commodities, over concentration on specific, like for the economic structures that they are taking. So, us, we have the Toha Program of Action. As a development practitioners, what should we all be focusing on in your view to support this very crucial category of countries like the LDCs in the next 10 years?
1: I think that one very important way to help the LDCs is to provide resources for them to use to address some of the challenges they're facing. Aid is, of course, crucial, but not only aid, technical assistance of different kinds can also be provided. Now, this is a challenge also, especially in the light of the pandemic. Because these countries have faced economic disruption, quite sharp contractions in GDP and so on, tax revenues have, in many cases, plummeted. So their own domestic resources that they could mobilize for financing public goods, public investments and so on is quite constrained currently. And this may well be the case for at least a year or maybe two or years. And this will certainly be the case if we cannot make sure the vaccines are distributed equitably across the world. Therefore, given the constraints we're facing right now for circumstances that are not within their own control, Nobody foresaw this pandemic and its effects on domestic resource mobilization. There has to be a concentrated effort to try and make sure that these countries receive assistance in many different ways, including aid, to try to tide over this major constraint they're facing. Because we do not want to see any kind of setback on their country's attempts to fund very important social programs, as I said, investing in schooling, health, and so on. We don't want to see that. So that's one part of it. The other part of it, as I said earlier, is on climate action. It's a very important issue, and we, of course, have to need to understand the transition, or the just transition that countries will be making in Africa, Asia, and elsewhere, away from fossil fuels and so on. But to do that, they need support, because this transition is not easy, and what you do not want to see The situation for many of these countries, as they make the transition, this particular, the effect of this transition is particularly felt by the poorer sections of the society. And I think there again, there needs to be climate finance. There needs to be support for many of these LDCs as they make this transition, as they want to make this transition towards less reliance on fossil fuels and for a carbon neutral pathway of development, they need support. And I think that's where the international community can also happen again. There are technology transfers and so on, what's coming to play and not just aid. But that's a really important issue because we cannot let the LDCs make this transition, the so called just transition, on their own. And I think there is a role for the international community, a very important role to play in making sure this transition can happen in a way that is equitable and that also makes sure that. The marginalised population, the the poorest of the poor in in societies are not impacted negatively by the transition. This is quite possible if they don't get the support from the international community.
0: Thank you so much, Professor. I think it's very interesting how you've highlighted the importance and the different stages of the recovery efforts that we're currently undergoing and uh, we're working on. And COVID-19 has really impacted us all. And I think given the fact that it's impacted us all, sometimes we may forget about the structural inequalities and structural difficulties that the poorest of them all may have. And the put us on making sure that we leave no one behind, especially in these difficult times, and we don't go back to the gains. We don't revert back from the gains that we've gained thus far, especially in those countries. And of course, uh, the climate imperative now that is depending on us and making sure that actually also we don't necessarily look at it in a very static way of providing uh, assistance and then just thinking about the future down the line, but really having a more of a comprehensive and more of a continuum around our different support. And that's what we truly believe in at UNCDF, in terms of making sure that, especially in those countries, there's the systems. In place and we support developing those systems nationally that can unlock further domestic resource mobilization to support those furthest behind first and have the social schemes social assistance schemes in place that can support them throughout and we would not know all of this uh, without research and the importance of looking at the different country contexts of understanding, also having both at a very country-specific view, but also of looking from a wider angle to see patterns, to understand causes, dimensions, etc. So can you tell us in your view, again, what role can research play in helping LDCs reach the SDGs beyond graduation?
1: I think research can play a very important role. This is why UNIVIDA itself has been, as our institution, been so involved in the LDC, the road to Doha process. As we had a major academic conference in Helsinki last October, where we had many part of the LDCs. We also had UN agencies. We had others from the donor world, from the international community, who came together to look at academic research, mostly done by LDC researchers, looking at the challenges they face in their own country context. So I was very pleased that UNU-WIDER co-hosted this conference, along with UN, OHR, LNS, the agency looking at after the LDC graduation process, or overseeing the process in the UN itself, and also several partners, government partners, that are involved in this discussion, including the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Finland too. So that was important because ultimately research it's important, but research has to be there for a reason, right? We are not doing pure academic research just to publish in journals. Of course, that's important. Everybody knows that. But also to do research that can absolutely address the challenges that LDCs are facing. And this is why we were very keen and made and this was really wonderful to see so many researchers from LDCs absolutely involved in the research themselves, because they know the local context. They know the local challenges. They know what's possible, what's not possible in the own country complex, And what we and UNEWIDA can do is provide a forum, an avenue, where this research is presented and discussed. And of course, we ourselves also are very much involved in this research process itself, as I mentioned in our work in Mozambique, as an example. Now, research itself has something that has to be, in my view, has to meet two criteria. One criteria is that it has to be relevant for the policy process and of course relevant for the discussion going on about the program of action that will follow in the Doha process implementation itself. So we need to have research that's absolutely linked to the policy process. For example, I mentioned economic transformation or, di- or moving away from concentration or in production and trade. How do we do that? What are the avenues? Do we need to see changes in multilateral trading systems that can allow some space for LDCs to, to make sure that they can diversify their trade and production structures. Do we need some space for LDCs, for example, where we do not take away MFA, MFA privileges that we often have with the withdraw when countries move away from LDC status, because they may need some more time. So if you are a country exporting garments, and you have, probably you have taken advantage of MFA status, You don't want to be told as soon as you move out of LSD status, you're going to lose that. Because you need some time. You need some time to move out of what you're producing because diversification, as we know, is not that straightforward. So research can help us understand what kind of rules of the game do we need internationally that can allow this bit more space for LSDs to diversify away from a few products and move into a far more equitable distribution of resources across different activities. And research is also important to help us understand what would inequality and poverty in many developing countries. Because again, it's not clear what works in a particular country. So you might have, for example, cash transfers, which are often used as anti-poverty mechanism. They might work in certain contexts, but they might not in some other contexts. And research can make it clear to us that under what conditions do certain kinds of government actions, including social protection measures, work and what can we do to make them more effective. This is where research comes in. Because research, what research does is that it looks at the evidence base on previous government actions, social protection measures, and so on, and say, okay, you know, this is what we learned from this particular program in, in this particular country. And maybe there's something we can know from what we, this country experienced that may be relevant to some other country, some other LDC. So I think that's really important. And I do also think that it's a mistake to think that when we look at LDC graduation, that we can only learn from current LDCs. No, we can learn from countries which have actually made that process of graduation many years back. Think of Vietnam as an example. We can learn from these countries which have successfully managed this process of moving out of low-income status many years back, because those lessons can be absolutely central for a country like Tanzania or Mozambique or, or Myanmar or Afghanistan, whichever that you see we're thinking about in their own process now, at the current process of graduation. And of course, we can learn from countries which are making the process of graduation in the next few years, Bangladesh being a good example here. We can learn from those countries too. So I think this is why I feel research, not only is it important for a policy point of view, but also we need to make sure the research is such that countries can learn from other experiences of other countries who have managed to make this process of graduation or economic development happen many years back. But, so one part of research is of policy relevance. The other part of research, which when you wider takes very seriously, is academic rigor. Research has to be rigorous in its mythology, in the way we approach evidence, because there is a danger sometimes with research that we do not take the evidence base seriously and we do not take into account how the research itself was done. The UNE wider has been always been very clear that while we are interested interest in policy-relevant research, the research that we do in UNE wider and the work that we facilitate elsewhere has to be rigorous because otherwise we might essentially be drawing policy lessons from research that is not well grounded in proper methodologies, and where you might actually draw the wrong conclusions about policies. So relevance of research and rigor go together. You can't have one and not the other. And that's something that UNU-WIDER have always taken seriously ever since we started out in the mid-1980s.
0: Thank you so much, Professor, for highlighting these dual dimensions of research and uh, the importance of sticking to relevance to the policy process, so the possible empirical application of the different aspects that you may be researching on, but also the rigor that comes with it so that we do not draw on wrong assumptions or draw on wrong conclusions that may affect most importantly and unfortunately the ones further behind first in most instances. So you've talked about LDC researchers, and I think let me highlight for our audience that there's a website, UNO wider, that has blogs, they have blog entries, even from the professor himself, of course. And you can really read through the different set of perspectives and the different research that the professors highlight from LDCs, by LDCs, for LDCs. So really just tune in, go have a look, go learn up, and of course, just talk about it, share it. And of course, from our end, we're always happy to, to hear your comments, to hear your thoughts, and to really start the conversation. I think what's uh, really important when we, and the reason also why we do this Road to Doha podcast, is really to start a conversation, to really make sure that the sudden perspectives of that are heard and really see different elements and different constraints and unique traits of LDCs from as many perspectives as possible to draw dialogue, to start a conversation, to make sure that we learn from each other and that we move ahead together for the LDCs. So Professor, it's been an utmost pleasure to hear your thoughts, to really sit down and you take notes, like <laughs> copious notes on your thinking and also different dimensions. I think it's very interesting. It's always nice to hear from people like you that work on this, that really think it through and have this dual like applicability, but also the time to really think through and conduct research with different partners. So thank you very much for coming and for joining us today.
1: Uh, thank you, Eduardo. It was a pleasure in, to be in this program. I think this is really important as we move towards thinking about the next stage of the Doha program implementation. It's really important that we think it through how a research institutes like UNU Wider and many others can really contribute to this process. Very important. And thank you for having me in the program. Absolutely. And again, just go
0: Google search UNU Wider. And uh, you're gonna find it here as well. We're gonna link it up onto the podcast uh, description, and you know, just you know, just see and let's work together towards the implementation of the Doha Programme of Action. This is Capital Musings, the UNCDF podcast where we focus on fresh ideas. And today we focus on research and its role in uh, making sure that finance and development initiatives work for the LDCs going forward. And until next time, stay tuned. Leave us comments. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our dedicated website, podcast.uncdf.org. If you found this episode useful, please spread the word on Twitter with the hashtag Capital Musings, or leave us a review. Reviews help us and new listeners discover our podcast. So if you enjoyed listening, please leave a review. Thanks, and until next time.